Good evening. And welcome to the First Unitarian Society of Minneapolis. I'm the Reverend Kelly Clement. I'm one of the ministers that serves this congregation. This congregation was gathered here in 1881, in part to discuss the ideas of Charles Darwin. Those were complex and dangerous ideas at the time. And we are proud to claim that we still engage in complex and dangerous ideas. In 1916, John Dietrich came to Minneapolis to create a new way, which we call congregational humanism. It's a way to be together in covenant and to do good in the world together without acknowledging the need for a deity. It was a dangerous and complex idea then, and it's still a dangerous and complex idea for some people today. We've long engaged in this practice of wrestling with such ideas, and certainly not perfectly. Ours is a predominantly white congregation, and we are now wrestling with our complicity in white supremacy. We acknowledge that we sit here on Dakota land, and we express gratitude for the continuing opportunities to wrestle with our part in the injustices that plague our time. I want to thank our partners who have helped make tonight possible Northland Sustainable Solutions, the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, Twin Cities Metro Chapter, Protect Minnesota, Healing Minnesota Stories, Birch Bark Books, and Women Against Military Madness. This event is one of many that are happening in the Twin Cities around 10 days of nonviolence. And a special thanks to two individuals without whom this event would not have happened, Bill Conrardi and Rebecca Kramer. What a joy. It has been a joy to imagine something wonderful and to make it happen. Look at you all here. You're wonderful, and I'm so delighted that you're here. I want to take a moment to recognize that many of us today, this day, are rattled, anxious, triggered, re-traumatized by what has happened this very day. As yet another woman speaks her truth to power in an effort to be believed. Together, let's take a moment to center ourselves to be here now, I invite you to let your breath out and take a breath in and let that out and breathe together. Let us be here. Let us be safe in this room. Let us be safe in our bodies. Let us rest together as we imagine something more wonderful than that which we have today. As writer and activist Adrienne Marie Brown tells us, 
Things are not getting worse. Things are getting uncovered. Our work is to hold each other close and continue to pull back the veil. And so that's what we'll do this evening to the event before us. It is my pleasure to introduce our introducer of uh, Dr. Dunbar Artiz. The bio that you have in your program of Waziyatwin is not up to date. Here's what you should know about Waz. Waziyatwin is a Dakota writer and teacher from the Lower Sioux, Upper Sioux, Upper Sioux, thank you, Yellow Medicine Village in southwestern Minnesota. She earned her PhD in American history from Cornell University and has held tenured positions at Arizona State University and the University of Victoria, where she also served as the Indigenous People's Research Chair in the Indigenous Governance Program. Her work seeks to build a culture of resistance within indigenous communities, to recover indigenous ways of being, and to challenge colonial institutions. Waziyatawin recently served as the Upper Sioux Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and just completed a history of her community. In addition, she serves as the Executive Director of the Dakota Nonprofit, I'm going to ask you to pronounce it. Makoche Ikikchupi. Close. A reparative justice project supporting Dakota reclamation of the homeland. Committed to sustainability and simplicity, she is in the process of building a traditional earth lodge at Enemy Swim in South Dakota. Wazi Atawin is the author and co-editor of six volumes, including What Does Justice Look Like? The Struggle for Liberation in the Dakota Homeland and for Indigenous Minds Only, a decolonization handbook edited with Michael Yellowbird. Please join me in welcoming Wazi Yatawin. Hello, my relatives. I'm uh, happy to see all of you here tonight, and it's with a good heart that I greet all of you with a handshake. I told you that I am Dakota, and in Dakota, they call me Waziatungi, which translates as woman of the north. And I told you that I come from the place uh, where they dig for yellow medicine, uh, and that place in English is known as the Upper Sioux Reservation, and it's about two and a half hours straight west of here in the beautiful Minnesota River Valley. So as you heard, and I hope everyone here knows, this is Dakota homeland. This is the place that we call Minnesota Makoche, 
and my family translates that as land where the waters reflect the skies. And I know when we're talking about peeling back the layers or unveiling things that have been covered up way too long, one of the realities uh, for me as a Dakota person is that uh, I live a life under colonial occupation. When I hear about the trauma of the testimony going on today, I felt that trauma coming in, driving into the Twin Cities. I'm fortunate enough to, to live in rural areas where overtaken by industrial agriculture, and so there's a different kind of destruction there. But every time I come into this city, when I think what is the heart of the birth of our people, it's under occupation. And that's something that Dakota people will never, ever forget. So I have to say that. But the reason I'm here is to introduce uh, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And I have to say that I'm very happy to do that. I was uh, honored to be asked. And for me, it was important because um, this is uh, a writer, a scholar who I truly admire. I can say with honesty that she is one of my favorite writers. And I also admire her because she's what might be called an engaged intellectual. Her politics line up with her scholarship. She lives her ethics, and that to me means a lot. And furthermore, she's just a badass warrior woman, outlaw <laughs> woman, and I like that. So, it's good you've come. So as many of you uh, know, I'm sure that uh, Dr. Dunbar-Ortiz has had an unflagging commitment to justice for at least five decades now, probably? Six decades, sorry. Um, and as I mentioned already, that this is something that is in both her personal life, her activism, and in her scholarship. Of course, um, she was an anti-war activist and organizer throughout the 1960s and 70s. She worked in Cuba with the Vencerimos Brigade and was involved with organizations such as the Students for a Democratic Society, the Weather Underground, Revolutionary Union, and of course, the Women's Liberation Movement. And a lot of her activism is outlined in her volume, Outlaw Woman, a memoir of the war years 1960 to 1975. However, it is her work on behalf of indigenous peoples with which I am most familiar. She was active in the early years with the American Indian Movement and the International Indian Treaty Council. And uh, this was part of her lifelong commitment to international human rights. Her first published book, The Great Sioux Nation, an oral history of the Sioux Nation and its struggle, struggle for sovereignty, was published in 1977 and, I think most significantly, was presented as the fundamental document at the first international conference on Indians of the Americas held at the United Nations headquarters in Geneva. It was in the aftermath of the Wounded Knee standoff, and my understanding is that she was asked to testify in December of 1974 at a hearing um, that was um, held to determine 
whether the United States government had jurisdiction over actions committed on Sioux land or Lakota land. And it was um, at that time that she was charged with the responsibility of turning those court transcripts into a book. And I think that this speaks volumes about the trust that our Lakota people um, had in her capacity to represent our interests. And uh, I know that that trust was well placed. On a per more personal note, I first met Roxanne uh, when she was the senior scholar on a panel that I was on uh, at an academic conference. I believe it was in the very early 2000s. Yeah, something, something like that. So, 2005. So, um, it was a while. It was a while ago, and. So it was in that capacity as a university scholar that I was first introduced to her and got to know her a little bit. And I uh, was fortunate enough that she was generous uh, to mentor my cohort of young indigenous female historians. We didn't have a lot of people who uh, were willing to mentor us and support us in a profession that was dominated by uh, white males and many of them older white males. So um, I know that all of us have valued that mentorship. Over the years, she's been active in carving and holding space for Native studies, ethnic studies, and women's studies. She's personally and professionally demonstrated how people in struggle change the narrative, which I believe is an essential step on the path toward justice. From my perspective as a fellow historian, uh, her most significant work, I believe, is an indigenous people's history of the United States, which was also the recipient of a 2015 American Book Award. In this volume, Dr. Dunbar Ortiz wrote, quote, the history of the United States is a history of settler colonialism. The founding of a state based on the ideology of white supremacy the widespread practice of African slavery, and a policy of genocide and land theft. Crystal clear. And it was about time that somebody said that. Um, I think that that was the history book, the US history book that I've been waiting for most of my life. In critiquing previous histories written on the topic of the United States, she states that the fundamental problem has been the absence of the colonial framework. She stated, settler colonialism as an institution or system requires violence or the threat of violence to attain its goals. People do not hand over their land, resources, children, and futures without a fight, and that fight is met with violence. Certainly, this was the case here in Dakota homeland, where our people went to war in 1862, not just against the United States government, but also against its colonizing citizens who were at the forefront of colonial invasion. The fact that Dakota people today occupy about 0.012%, that's 12 thousandths of 1% of our original homeland here is testament to the success of Minnesota's policies of genocide and land theft. 
but that colonial framework that she talks about is also absent in the Minnesota histories available today, at least the ones your children are reading in school. So hers is the history that more than two centuries of US historians have tried to suppress. And uh, I was asked to write a blurb for the book, and when I was um, working on that, after finishing the book and thinking about, for me, what the importance was, uh, I wrote, while this work does not make for a cozy national bedtime story, justice seekers everywhere will celebrate Dunbar Ortiz's unflinching commitment to truth, a truth that places settler colonialism and genocide exactly where they belong is foundational to the existence of this ill-begotten country. So one of the things I love about Roxanne's intellectual work is that she expertly blows apart the myths that so often go unexamined in this country. One of my favorite short pieces is her 2006 article, Stop Saying This is a Nation of Immigrants. I love that one. And if you haven't read it, it's cogent, it's spot on, so please do. Always, her work is provocative, it's brilliant, and it's got a razor-sharp critique. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what she has to say about the white supremacist roots of the Second Amendment uh, to accompany her latest publication, Loaded, A Disarming History of the Second Amendment. So in a moment, I'm going to turn it over to my mentor, my colleague, my friend, and my sister in struggle. Um, but before I do that, I want to um, present something to you. So I was asked to present this gift to you, this hospitality basket, as a memento of your, uh, of your time in Minnesota from all of your fans and friends here in Minnesota Makoche. So please welcome Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Waz didn't mention she gave up on the historical profession as such. I don't blame her. Uh, it's a very um, unwelcoming uh, um, uh, discipline because as I figured out when I decided to major in it, it's the keeper of the secrets. U.S. historians keep the secrets. They know. They know this history. They know the truth. And they lie to you purposefully for the purpose of what they call civics, being good citizens. <clears throat> so I am really honored um, to be here on occupied uh, Dakota land and to be introduced by, um, I consider was really my mentor, <laughs> you know, because uh, everything I know about um, this area uh, and the Dakota people, I've really learned from her and her work. And she also planted in my mind the uh, um, the under, deeper understanding of settler colonialism. 
I theoretically, I had it, but really the deeper understanding. So um, our mentorship is mutual, <laughs> as well as our love and respect. So I, I want to thank uh, Reverend Kelly Clement uh, for uh, having us here in the First Unitarian uh, Society. And especially, again, Rebecca Kramer and Bill um, Conradry. Where's Bill? Let me see. Oh, bye. Oh, hi, Bill. Okay, Bill's back there. But uh, they have um, built for almost a year or more than a year the um, handling of all the annoying logistics <laughs> to get me here and to get co-sponsorship and everything and look at uh, the results. Um, again, give them a hand. And they've taken very good care of me from the minute I arrived. Um, so I also want to thank the other co-sponsors, uh, the, co the um, Northland Sustainable Solutions, uh, WILF, my favorite international NGO, uh, Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, and Birchbark Books for being here and um, uh, bringing the books for sale. Uh, healing uh, Minnesota, and um, um, this one, my favorite one that I hadn't included, I don't know, was a latecomer, but this is the most wonderful um, name of an organization, Women Against Military Madness. <laughs> Where are you, Women Against Military <laughs> <laughs> I think Will falls into that category too, but I really like that upfront name. Um, so uh, the title of my talk tonight uh, is based on, on this new book, Loaded, A History of the Second Amendment. Um, but I'm going to focus on the white supremacist roots of the Second Amendment. And um, uh, a lot of that is in one chapter called um, White Nationalism. But it's throughout, you know, it's, it's actually the basis of um, the Second Amendment. So in the early 1970s, approximately 50% of all homes in the United States contained a firearm, one firearm, 50% of people had a gun. Uh, that's 112 million guns and a population of 200 million. Still more than most countries in the world, but um, it, um, nothing compared to now. Half century later, so we have to look at this as a time period, an arc, what happened in those 50 years. A half century later, the number of guns privately owned in the United States has reached 300 million, and that's the total population, including babies, um, very elderly people, everyone, children, 300 million. So only a third of households in the United States now contain firearms, was half 
50 years ago, but they only have one. The average now is eight, eight guns per person who owns, so that's 30%. So the, that third of the population that own guns are gun hoarders. You know, I think we have to call it for what it is. They're, that's hoarding. Uh, they call it collecting, but it's hoarding, given the nature of what guns are. So it's significant that 74% of the 100 million gun owners in the United States are men, and that 82% of all gun owners are white, which means that 61% of all adults who own guns are white men, and they own an average of eight each. And this demographic accounts for only 31% of the total population. I think those statistics are important to narrow down. Who are we talking about when we say gun proliferation and gun ownership? We're talking about a tiny minority of a majority white men. So the top reason that gun owners give for owning a gun is for protection. But just think about it, do you really need eight guns for protection? Um, so that, um, that's the crux of it. What's it all about? Vocal gun rights advocates, of which I'm sure is uh, many, many of you here, um, and gun control, I mean, gun control advocates, many of you here. <laughs> gun rights, gun control. All right, so both groups are predominantly white and more affluent, you know, uh, upper middle class. Um, and there's little basis for communicating uh, with the arguments that take place. They're sort of like ships passing in the night. Because gun ownership appears, uh, and rightly so, as irrational, if not insane, to gun control advocates and to the rest of the world well, gun lovers rely on the Second Amendment. And I think that's because they have no other argument and don't wish to admit, perhaps even to themselves, what the Second Amendment signifies. And in fact, neither party seems to have any idea of what the Second Amendment was originally about. So many gun rights advocates appeared to think the Second Amendment was originally about hunting, as evidenced in, their, in the clueless argument, you don't need an AR-15 to shoot a deer. No, that's because it wasn't about hunting. I wanted to name this book, It Ain't About Hunting. <laughs> It has nothing whatsoever to do <laughs> with hunting, but it does, the fact that that is so widely thought, um, does indicate another myth that exists, and that's the myth of the hunter, which is a chapter in the book. The fact is that British settlers, as well as post-independence white rural settlers, actually used domesticated animals. They brought them from Europe for food. Pigs, chickens, cows, you know. Um, and not wild game. 
Nearly all their hunting was commercial for the huge, lucrative, global capitalist fur trade. Daniel Boone was a fur trader. He was a commercial hunter. They call them market hunters. And mostly they used trapping rather than firearms, taking the skins and leaving the dead bodies to rot. Gun use was neither recreational nor necessary for food. Guns were to kill Indians. So gun control advocates often blame the NRA uh, for gun pro proliferation and for uh, obsession with a sort of cult of the Second Amendment and call it the gun lobby. But we ha really need to get it straight what the National Rifle Association is about. It has around five million dues-paying members and many millions more who support NRA calls for legislative action. The NRA's annual budget is $300 million, only 10% of which actually goes to direct lobbying. Bloomberg has a lot more money invested in, in gun control than the NRA. And that's because the NRA has a mass base. And that's what's scary about it. And I think people are resistant to recognize that it's much scarier than, than if it were a gun lobby. They actually do very little lobby, but rather they follow and grade every political candidate from the dog catcher to the president, the local, municipal, little towns, counties, states, and federal. And actually, um, they hardly lobby federal Congress at all. And gun rights, um, gun control advocates mainly focus on the federal. So what they do is give this information to their chapters, uh, focusing on state legislators who make the gun laws. And um, these active affiliates are in every community in every state. They're right here all over in Minnesota with an average membership of 100,000 per state. If we had 100,000 per state of absolutely dedicated to I don't know, uh, almost anything, ending the death penalty, let's say, we would be as successful as the NRA is with, uh, without lobbying, just that many people out, totally dedicated and following it. Well, the NRA has in the past 50 years, actually 40 years for the NRA, become a right-wing membership organization with a strong popular base. This didn't just happen with Trump. So instead of dismissing the Second Amendment as antiquated and irrelevant, or not actually meaning what it says, the right to bear arms of every individual, remember the citizens who had the right to bear arms were white male property owners when the Constitution was written, so understanding the original purpose of the Second Amendment is key to understanding 
the gun culture and gun violence of the United States, and very possibly the key to a new consciousness about the continuing effects of settler colonialism and white nationalism. So the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution is a simple statement. Uh, it gets, you know, it gets analyzed in weird ways, you know, of, of, as if it's a Rorschach test, but I think it's pretty clear, well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to bear and arms shall not be infringed. So to understand that, since there was very little debate about it, it was taken for granted, you have to understand the historical context it came out of. So the NRA and its constituency argue that the Second Amendment guarantees the right for every individual to bear arms without regulations, while gun control advocates maintain the Second Amendment is about states continuing to have their own militias, emphasizing the language of well-regulated. As was pointed out, those settlers were pretty well-regulated on their own, self-regulated, taking land. So, but gun, gun control advocates tend to argue that this meant the National Guard. But that makes no sense because the respective state militias were already authorized. What became the National Guard was authorized in the US Constitution. It recognized the colonial, then state militias that formed before and during the War for Independence and mandated to them the vital roles to play to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections and repel invasion. The President of the United States is the Commander-in-Chief of the state militias when called into the actual service of the United States. This is Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution. So why would they need to repeat it in the Bill of Individual Rights to have the National Guard? So then the question is, who are these militias? What are they about? What is it referred to? Well, I think unequivocally, if you know this history and you don't leave Native people out of it, uh, the Second Amendment, along with all of the other nine amendments, constituted individual rights, and the militias referenced are voluntary and self-organized settler militias, not state militias, unrelated to the National Guard. I know it gets scarier and scarier, but this is the reality we need to be facing of what this country is about. So one argument that runs through the historical accounts of thinking uh, behind the Second Amendment from Richard Hofstadter to um, many, many uh, US historians is a kind of romantically idealizing Anglo settler farmers as fiercely independent and fearing big brother government, insisting on settler rights to insurrection, an argument now taken up even by some anti-racist white groups. But what Anglo settlers considered oppressive was any restriction that British authorities put on them in regard to obtaining land. In the instances of Bacon's Rebellion, 
1676, the War of Independence itself, and many cases in between, the settlers' complaint was the refusal of the British colonial authorities to allow them to seize native land peripheral to the colonies, which from Britain's perspective, as the colonial master, could lead to unnecessary and expensive wars with very powerful native nations. And they were right. Historian Charles Sellers wrote, cheap land held absolutely under the seaboard market's capitalist conception of property swelled patriarchal honor to heroic dimensions in early America. The father's authority rested on the legal title to the family land, where European peasant holdings were usually encumbered with obligations to some elite. The American farmer held in fee simple. First instance of that in Earth. Supreme in his domain, he was beyond interference by any earthly power. Fee simple land, the augmenting theater of the patriarchal persona, sustained his honor and untrammeled will. This extraordinary independence inflated American farmers' conception of their class far beyond peasantry, even when they were poor. In other words, every white man a capitalist, an armed capitalist, taking land as the basis of capitalism. In a book written in the early 1800s, historian Joseph Doddridge, a minister and early settler in the Ohio country, wrote that on the frontier, quote, every man was a soldier, and from early in the spring till late in the fall was almost continually in arms. Their work was often carried on by parties, each one of whom had his rifle and everything else belonging to his wardress. That's a description of a militia that I'm talking about. These were deposited, these arms, in some central place in the field. A sentinel was stationed on the outside of the fence so that on the least alarm, the whole company repaired to their arms and were ready for combat in a moment. Who were they afraid of? Who was there? Who was out there? There are only so many bears they might, you know, might walk around and menace them. This is long before this description, before the War of Independence. There weren't any redcoats around. There weren't any French at the time. There were the native people who were there, probably trying to get back the land that had been taken, but also to prevent taking more because they usually were on unceded land, already farming. And then they would um, insist on the British authorities and later to the US and writing into the Constitution that uh, this be made legal, legalized. So in the late 18th century, at the time of the writing of the Constitution, and the Second Amendment, you know, is part of the Constitution. Native nations were not a political afterthought, 
as they are portrayed in uh, most US history texts. They were the entire context. <laughs> Except for the original 13 colonies um, hugging the Atlantic once they were established, and I mean they were hugging the Atlantic, they only went up to the mountain range, and that was what the United States was when it was founded. Everything else came about by these you know, genocidal wars and settler colonialism. They were, there were powerful native nations, owned and governed the territories, owned communally and governed the territories that colonizer map makers labeled the United States. Didn't belong to them at all. These maps can be found in the Northwest Ordinance, mapped out. Not only that, they mapped it all the way to the Pacific Ocean. They mapped Massachusetts all the way to what is Washington and Oregon today. So it was built into the founding to take the continent. As historian Daniel Richter observes, <coughs> the United States was born in a revolution against Indians as well as against the crown that its property was based on the expropriation of native land. So the settler democracy established by the Constitution rested on racial exclusion. Indeed, Indian affairs propelled the creation of a more powerful nation state. The savages, in quotes, that Alexander Hamilton referenced at the Constitutional Convention were both thus the impetus and the justification for the creation of a federal standing army supported through direct taxation. The militaristic constitutional solution to Indian affairs sought a fiscal military state that would possess the means to dominate the borderlands as the United States warred itself across the continent and into central Mexico and then across the Pacific and into the Caribbean and into the Vietnam and into the uh, Middle East. Still going on, this isn't just history. So the Second Amendment reflects dependence on individual armed men, not just in terms of their right to bear arms, but also as a requirement to bear arms early on. Taking land by force was not an accidental or spontaneous project or the work of a few rogue characters like Andrew Jackson. The violent appropriation of native land by white settlers was seen as an individual right in the Second Amendment of the US Constitution, second only to freedom of speech. Male colonial settlers had long formed militias for the purpose of raiding and raising indigenous communities and seizing their lands and resources and the native communities fought back. Virginia, the first colony, forbade any man to travel unless he was well armed, in quotes. A few years later, another law required men to take arms with them to work and to attend church or be fined. In 1658, the colony ordered every settler home to have a functioning firearm 
and later even provided government loans for those who could not afford a weapon. Similarly, New England colonial governments made laws such as the 1632 requirement that each person have a functioning firearm plus two pounds of gunpowder and 10 pounds of bullets. Householders were fined for missing or defective arms and ammunition. No man was to appear at a public meeting, including church, unarmed. These laws stayed on the books of the earliest colonies and were created in new colonies as they were founded. And the Second Amendment, ratified in 1791, enshrined these rights and obligations as constitutional law and individual rights. The continuing significance of, the specify, of that specified in the Bill of Rights reveals the settler colonialist political and social roots of the United States that appear even now as a sacred right. Several of the colonies that declared independence in 1776, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Vermont, and Virginia, had already adopted individual gun rights measures in their state constitutions. You know, they first rebelled as a confederation of states, each of them a, a separate nation state, a commonwealth. So they all had constitutions already when they came to the Constitutional Convention to create a single Federalist Constitution. And they imported, especially from Virginia, one that Thomas Jefferson wrote for the Virginia Constitution, uh, they had already adopted almost the same wording in their state constitutions. Um, and they then specifically relied on the language of the Virginia Constitution of 1778. <clears throat> so settler militias and armed households were inscribed as settler rights for the destruction and control of native peoples, communities, and nations. With the expansion of plantation agriculture in the late 17th century, they were also then used, carved out of them, were slave patrols, forming the basis of the U.S. police culture after emancipation and to this day. That is the inseparable other half of the settler colonial reality that is implicit in the Second Amendment. Like the Indian killing militias that continued and intensified as the United States appropriated more land for slavers, slave patrols grew accordingly. The ethnic cleansing of Native Americans complete in the eastern, um, east of the Mississippi. The slavers, with their reserve of capital and enslaved labor, transformed the Mississippi Valley into the cotton kingdom that formed the basis for our very economic system and world trade. So the militaristic powerhouse that the United States became by 1840 derived from real estate, which included the value of bodies of enslaved Africans as well as appropriated native land. So the United States was actually founded as a capitalist state and thanks to the brilliance of Alexander Hamilton, the financial manager, 
really established a specifically cap, uh, capitalism and an empire on conquered land with capital in the form of slaves, hence the term chattel slavery. This was exceptional in the world and has remained exceptional and not in the way they mean it when they say the US is exceptional. As well, the capitalist firearms industry was among the first successful modern corporations. Gun proliferation and gun violence today are the direct legacies of this history. Now, when compared to other countries that carried out colonial conquests in Africa, Asia, the Caribbean and South America, the Pacific, the United States was not exceptional in the sheer amount of violence it imposed to achieve sovereignty over the territories it appropriated. Probably nothing, nothing in the United States could compare um, to the Belgian Congo, for instance. Um, so we're not talking about level of brutality. That's inherent in colonialism. That's an aspect of colonialism. The British colonization, settler colonialism of Canada, Australia, New Zealand were equally genocidal as the United States. Extreme violence, particularly against unarmed families and communities was an inherent aspect of European colonialism, always with the genocidal possibilities, but especially uh, genocidal effects with settler, settler colonialism. So what distinguishes the US experience is not the amount and type of violence involved, but rather the historical narratives attached to that violence and their political uses even today, particularly the sacredness bestowed upon the Constitution and thereby the Second Amendment. So the astronomical number of firearms owned by United States civilians with the Second Amendment considered a sacred mandate is also intricately related to militaristic culture and white nationalism. But this reality must be due in large, major, uh, in large measure to the fact that the great majority of US citizens actually accept the Second Amendment as an individual constitutional right and view the Constitution as sacred. Following the 2008 Supreme Court Heller decision, which ruled that the Second Amendment was indeed an individual right to bear arms, it wasn't overthrowing anything because actually, you know, there, there had been very little legislation in the past. The Gallup organization asked this question in a poll of the general population, not just gun owners. Do you believe the Second Amendment to the US Constitution guarantees the rights of Americans to own guns? Or do you believe it only guarantees members of state militias such as the National Guard units the right to own guns? 73% agreed it was an individual right, while 20% said it was not. And remember, only 30% of the population own guns. 
So there's a problem with the Second Amendment and how it's viewed, and I think that problem goes to also to the heart of the Constitution. Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson put it succinctly, without guns, there would be no West. You remember Alan Simpson? Some of you who are younger might, might not remember <laughs> this horrible guy. Uh, <laughs> You might remember him from the Anita Hill, if you're old enough. That was, that was pretty, uh, uh, he, he was one of the top contenders for obscenity and that. I'm trying to find out what time, uh, 8.05, watching my time. Okay, we're not through with Alan Simpson. Uh, <laughs> He added that his grandfather had settled in the Wyoming Territory two years before Custer's defeat by the Sioux and the Cheyenne Nations at the Little Bighorn. The West, of course, is a metaphor for the continent as it began on the Atlantic seaboard. But in this interview, Simpson was not only speaking historically about the gun, what guns were for to kill Indians, always the implied enemy, in order to seize more land, he was promoting gun rights. He was being interviewed about gun rights um, in the present. He pointed out in another, in another in interview of his view of gun rights that in Wyoming, how steady you, own, you hold your rifle, that's gun control in Wyoming. <laughs> this is very revealing. You know, I know it's humorous too, but it's very revealing. Because here he reveals that when firearms are no longer needed to appropriate indigenous people's lands, since they've taken at all, the gun becomes a representation of ongoing colonialist racial domination, a kind of war trophy. Not just of native peoples and their territories, but of Af African Americans, Mexicans, Muslims. That's the nature of white nationalism. So the post, how did this come about this last 50 years? Um, it, if you think of it, and those of you who are old enough, or old as I am, probably not that many here are old as I am, but uh, you can vividly remember um, what the country was like in, say, 1950. It was a lockdown white republic. Women had no rights, married women had no rights at all. Women in general didn't have rights. African Americans were under Jim Crow in the South. And when they tried to escape that and migrate uh, to the nor northern cities to work or later to, into the defense industry on the West Coast, um, segregation and the kinds of slave patrol police forces went with them and they were segregated. Um, Mexicans were at that time being deported in the millions as braceros without any rights whatsoever. So up until that time, there had also been almost no juridical, well, there was, the Second Amendment was no big thing. The NRA existed from the 1880s. Uh, the unions sold, uh, union uh, veterans uh, actually forming target practicing because the Olympics started having target practicing as one of the summer games. 
And um, so it was, you know, purely recreational. You didn't need big guns for it or anything. So it wasn't, you know, it didn't have Second Amendment written all over it or anything. Um, so this is when you have this lockdown situation. And what else do you have happening? What happens in 1953? Brown versus Board of Education, desegregation of schools. This was a bomb. This was an earthquake for white nationalism. You see the writing on the wall. And they started organizing immediately. They didn't have to be, they didn't have the Ku Klux Klan anymore. The Ku Klux Klan were just, you know, took their hoods off and they were, they had been slave patrols. They put their hoods on under reconstruction. They took them off under Jim Crow and they were just the sheriffs, but they put their hoods back on. Uh, white citizens councils, um, the, uh, all over the southern border states, um, formed immediately and most perniciously the John Birch Society because they were an elite group formed by very wealthy men. For instance, Fred Koch of the Koch brothers' father was a founding member of the John Birch Society. And they immediately uh, paired up communism and integration. So this is how we had the Cold War suppressing social justice by calling it communism and actually criminalizing it. So this is when originalism began, the idea of originalism of the Constitution, what the founders actually meant. So this genealogy goes back to that Supreme Court decision and the John Birch Society was, their motto was uh, impeach Earl Warren. He was the Supreme Court justice um, for the decision. And the other elite, the Eastern elite, that saw the writing on the wall uh, in the post-war period that, you know, was they had this competition with socialism, with uh, actually existing socialism in, in three-fourths of the world and um, uh, Soviet states in China, that they had to compete, you know, for looking good, that capitalism can be good. And it didn't look good to see fire hoses knocking down children and old ladies, you know, and um, um, demonstrations in the South. So they saw the need to restructure to keep everything the same. But that gave rise to this virulent, um, um, virulent new white nationalism. So we can trace the white nationalism from that time. It took them a while to start gaining political power. Uh, the first was Barry Goldwater, of course, in 1964. That failed, but it didn't stop them. They then, John Birch Society had this, um, had this organizing principle, although they were very elite, to organize uh, suburban housewives. And Orange County became the main place. It's like 99.9% white and mostly migrants from, uh, white migrants from the southwestern states. Um, and uh, uh, women, the kitchen table letter writing 
handwritten letters to legislatures. This became massive all over the country, taking over school boards, uh, not by guns or anything, but by packing them, being active, being like you should be in your school boards, <laughs> and um, textbooks, choosing textbooks and all. So let me just finish telling you about the, how the NRA became a white nationalist organization. It, um, it was taken over in 1977 uh, by the right-wing Second Amendment Foundation and its lobbying arm, the Citizens Committee for the Right to Keep and Bear Arms, both founded in Washington State in 1974. They seized the leadership. It was then that the NRA put Second Amendment up and started, you know, the originalism, the Constitution, that it was the white nationalist um, motto. And the head of this Second Amendment Association, this right-winger, was named Harlan Carter. Um, he, was, he was the primary actor in the coup that transformed the NRA into a white nationalist organization. Carter is interesting. These connections are interesting because following the career path of his father, uh, he was a US Border Patrol chief. He killed a Mexican uh, kid when he was a teenager and got exonerated for it. Then he became a Border uh, Patrol, and he was the Border Patrol chief uh, in the mid-1950s running Operation Wetback. That's what it was called, wetback. A violent, corrupt, racist, and massive roundup and deportation of more than a million Mexicans, most of them actually U.S. citizens, that never found their way back. They were deported uh, without papers, without anything, uh, um, built their lives. Many of them had been here before it was even the United States they had been there. So the NRA membership then started soaring in the Reagan years because Nixon came out of Orange County, Reagan came out of California. I'm not in California now, but people think it's such a liberal place. Actually, it's where the white nationalist movement took root. It's no accident it was a center also of uh, um, the military industrial complex. So. I want to end, I, I know that um, um, most of you are very aware of the uh, terrible shooting in Parkland in Florida uh, in February, uh, but I want to tell you a kind of tragic story that you need to be aware of um, about the, those students organizing now and the consciousness that needs to be um, generated. So the shooter was a, an expelled student from uh, the school. From, from, they were all affluent families, very affluent part of, uh, uh, of uh, Dade County. Um, they were enthusiastic. He was an enthusiastic member of the junior ROTC from age 11 learning and practicing shooting uh, lethal military weapons in the, in the school cafeteria using, you know, NRA supplies, uh, all this equipment for, like, video game shooting and all. 
He wore the JROTC uniform, the maroon t-shirt and khaki slacks when he carried out the massacre. So he's literally acting like a, he was a soldier. So JROTC is a federal program sponsored by the US Armed Forces in high schools and some middle schools across the United States, probably right here in Minnesota. The program was originally created as a part of the National Defense Act of 1916 and later expanded under the 1964 ROTC Revitalization Act. Many of the Parkland students, survivors, and one, uh, at least one who was killed, were also in the JROTC. And who, when asked, they give a very strong support for the Second Amendment. And so I think that's troublesome because they have, um, they see it as mental illness. This is the NRA thing, you know, that gun violence is mental illness. I'm sure it is, but it's mental illness to have eight guns in the first place, you know. I mean, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, if that isn't why, you know, um, the paranoia. So I have a one-minute poem to read. This is, um, okay. So if ever built, what will the United States Native American Genocide Memorial Museum contain? What will it exhibit? It will be one room, a 50-foot square, with the same large photo filling the walls, ceiling, and floor. There will be only one visitor allowed at any one time. There will be no furniture. That one visitor will have to stand or sit on the floor or lie on the floor if they feel the need. That visitor must remain in that room for one hour. There will be no music. The only soundtrack will be random gunshots from rifles used throughout American history. Reverberation. What will that one photo be? It will be an Indian baby shredded by a Gatling gun, lying dead and bloody in the snow. That's Sherman Alexi. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much, Roxanne. Um, those of us who, are, who have your book uh, hear the echoes, and if you have not read the book, it's available to you outside uh, from Birch Barch Bark Books who are selling it, and Roxanne, you're gonna do some book signing. Yes. Um, but I, I highly, highly recommend this because uh, many of these facts we can pour over for a while. We have a little bit of time for Q&A. We had the idea that we were gonna pass out cards and then you could write your questions. And the idea was this would cut down on people making speeches. 
We know the people who come, right? You've got a little speech you want to make, right? We didn't get the cards out, so it's my opportunity to say that we have time for a few questions, and I'm going to ask you not to make a speech, okay? So, uh, so we can hear more of uh, Roxanne fielding this, and if you, and I'm going to ask a further request. If you walk in this world with an awful lot of privilege, hold back a little bit. Let's let people who maybe don't have the opportunity so often to speak to ask some of the first questions. Does that make sense? Okay. So we have time for a, a few questions, and, and uh, well, I'll cut you off if you start to make a speech. So, please. You can give the microphone to him. Yes. Okay. Scott, I may have you do this. Walk around for them. <laughs> yeah. Someone else might should run around. Thank you very much. I, I'm very intrigued, and I thank you very much. I'm here tonight because I'm taking a violence class, and I have to write a paper. And so I'm, I'm just, I can't wait to get your book, because I have to read a book, too. But... I was, you know what, I was really intrigued about the JROTC being taught, and I'm wondering if you've considered possibly the Boy Scouts of America uh, being part of uh, this whole um, also, you know, white nationalism. And what is it called? Boy Scouts of America. Boy Scouts? What? Boy Scouts. Oh, Boy Scouts. Oh, um... Well, that's a really good question. Uh, the Boy Scouts are based on that myth of a hunter, you know, and perpetuated generation and Girl Scouts uh, camping. And everyone wants to be in the wilderness and camping, but with no indigenous people there. You know, clear the mountain, let us come in and you know, have these romantic ideas and even dress up like Indians, maybe, you know, shoot a bow and arrow or find arrowheads. Yeah, I think it's fundamentally, a, you know, a, an education. It's not, they're not born white nationalists, but it, it's a formation in white nationalism, even when it becomes, an important thing about white nationalism is that this is a society that, um, um, that immigrants can become settlers. You know, at first it was settler colonialism. 1840, the first, uh, it, there were no immigration laws till the 1870s, but the Irish famine refugees came in millions. And uh, there's a wonderful book by, a sad book by Noel Native of how, how the Irish became white. I think that's worded wrong because it's how they became settlers. They became policemen, they became, they took the lowest jobs, police jobs were the lowest jobs, slave patrol jobs, not prestigious, uh, working on the canals, uh, and, and, you know, handling the dead, and all this, sort of this caste system of immigrants that forms this, not much study has been done of it, how immigrants get um, uh, reformed to, to fit into the national narrative and the national story and not challenge it. And one is to have the privilege of, of whiteness. Um, 
So I think, you know, in, in some ways it's come to be that anyone can become white. Clarence Thomas managed to become white, you know? <laughs> and so it's, it's not entirely just, uh, you know, race is a social construct, so it's malleable. And it serves a certain purpose, you know, to keep. But of course, the, you know, the heart of it is then white nationalism. So you have to be willing to act against your own people, you know, when, when you make that transition. So, um, so I think Boy Scouts, they're more integrated now, but I, haven't they still refused to have gay members? I don't, I don't know what, where that's at now, but. Um, but that would, I'm sure that's hard for them because it's supposed to be the, you know, the, uh, the hunter, you know, the patriarch, the masculine. Here, I think there's one on this side and the other back. Back right off. You should get off your feet. Where am I going? I'm a high schooler who walked out after the Parkland shooting, and I want to know what um, insight I should bring to my peers so we use our activism in the right way. Wait, wait. We've got to get this phone under control here. Okay, go ahead. I, can. Um, I walked out of school after the Parkland shooting with a bunch of my peers, and I want to know how I should take your insight about the Second Amendment back to them so we use our activism right. Oh, I, I'm so glad. Well, you know, um, we made one attempt, not me personally, but a friend uh, who was invited. He was a veteran of the Columbia Revolt, and that was, you know, the four, uh, 50th anniversary this year. And he was invited to be on a program uh, in uh, May in New York, uh, on CNN, I think it was. And he was paired with um, the young man, uh, Hogg. I uh, can't remember his first name, James Hogg. Mm -hmm. The young man who's a you know, very good looking young man who was uh, um, one of the people, you know, outspoken, supported by his parents and all. And one of several, I mean, it's uh, quite a collective leadership. Um, so my friend uh, took a copy of Loaded and uh, you know, wanted to have a chance to talk with him. And um, he, he looked at it and he said, well, I, you know, I already knew this. And I told my friend, I saw him on Bill Maher. I saw him on, uh, on, um, uh, upon, on the real time, Bill Maher. I saw this whole young man. And he had said there, and he and his friend, that they completely supported the Second Amendment. In fact, he said his father was a policeman. There were guns all over the house, and the other one had said his father was an FBI agent. And <coughs> so I, um, I didn't think he would have much success, but he was very disappointed because of the militancy of supporting the Second Amendment. And, and the, so I, I think, on the one hand, how social movements work, that there's a role of you know, high school kids getting involved, but I, I think you know, that kind of intervention with the real truth about the Second Amendment, because I think it is the problem, you know, to having any kind of change in consciousness about guns, is if it's understood that it, it 
It represents genocide. It represents slavery. It represents and still is manifest in um, colonialism, you know, U.S. colonialism. Look what happened at Wounded Knee. Uh, you know, they came in like it was, it was the army with tanks and 82nd Airborne uh, when a few Native Americans protest, were protesting um, their chairman, you know. And so this, this knee-jerk reaction, you know, of militarization regarding Native Americans and police uh, shooting any random, you know, black man who's alone or driving a car or doing anything uh, as possibly a fugitive. You know, it, it's, it's almost like it's built into the DNA, you know, the social DNA. Um, if, so it has to, you know, the Second Amendment has to be exposed. And I think we have to get deeper into the Constitution itself. Because the Electoral College, for instance, you know, was, was made for slave owners, by and for slave owners. I mean, they founded the government. They were like 90% of the leadership for the first 50, you know, 50 years of uh, a U.S. existence. So, of course, they wrote the law to fit their desires and needs. And we know what the Electoral College does. That, that, what, six out of seven of the last elections have been won by the... Uh, Republicans through the Electoral College, and that means, you know, gerrymandering. You can make that happen. Um, so there, there's in-depth, there's studies, there's a study that's already out that's pretty brilliant, and I quoted from some of it about the, it's called the Savage Constitution. It's a law review article in, in the Duke Law Review from 2014, and the text of it is online. You can read the whole thing. It's 95 pages, uh, but um, pretty dense. But it's it's really really interesting because it it does show the um, um, that it was all also made you know for uh, taking the land native uh, native land. So um, I think we have to. Demythify the Constitution, and I say, you know, we're exceptionalists. Do we really want to be exceptional? Not only in owning the most guns and having the most mass shootings, and being the largest military in the world, uh, killing people constantly, um, to also um, be um, the only people in the world that consider its Constitution a sacred covenant. You know, a lot of countries don't have constitution, like Great Britain. <laughs> uh, they do fine. They have laws. They don't have to have a constitution. So we have to ask, why is this promoted, you know, as a uh, almost a culty kind of thing you have to defend and say, base everything on. And you watch this, you know, this, this circus going on right now with the Supreme Court justice as if as if that is an, um, a, an apolitical body. You know, it's, uh, it never has been, at least since, well, it was always a white republic, you know, but Andrew Jackson told John Marshall to go to hell, that he had the army when John Marshall found that the Cherokees had the right to have their nation in Georgia. He said, just go to hell. 
you know, and he, he, removed, he removed everyone. So that, you know, if it, wasn't, if it wasn't apolitical before, it's certainly never been since. And, and the Dred Scott decision, you know, all, I mean, it's, it's not a sacred document, you know, and it's not something that can be um, reformed um, by any means that we have, you know, what it takes to even make a, uh, an amendment constitution is beyond any social movement's powers except possibly the NRA. <laughs> uh, because at any time, you know, in the system we have, any time you have, I think, I mean, they have 20% hardcore, at least 20%, and fully armed, the white nationalists do and fully focused, and they have a president in power, and they have congressmen, and they have legislatures, and they have governors. They have a lot of power. But they got that with minority power, because the way the system works, and if we want to play it, I guess, and undo it, we have to find some way to build, at least, I think we could do it with 5%, frankly, because we have I think, uh, social justice on our side, you know. And um, it makes a difference, you know, to, but really solidify in some way uh, uh, to make a difference within this system. But we have, to, we have to see what it is and not think we can just run a third party candidate, you know, and vote how you feel and, I mean, those are ridiculous things under this very undemocratic system. You know, we have to be realistic if we're going to make a real change. Thank you for a very interesting presentation. I just want to clarify something. When you were talking about the origins of the Second Amendment, were you saying that the origins of the Second Amendment were that individuals, the settler colonialists that you mentioned, that the Second Amendment was based on their right, their individual right to bear arms? That's sort of the origin of the amendment, and that's how it was yeah. carried out? Okay. So now my second question is, what can I do tomorrow or the day after tomorrow to help get rid of the Second Amendment. Okay, um, one thing you can do is make clear and expose that the NRA is a white nationalist organization. They have five million members, and every time I say that in an interview, you know, with a regular radio station or TV or something, I always get the pushback of, well, I know some people in the NRA and they aren't white nationalists. And there are some black people, there's you know, this, this black guy who advertises, he's actually progressive, a rapper who publicizes. Uh, I know some anarchists, uh, uh, gun club people who are joining the RA, NRA. Make it clear what it's about. It's a minority that took it over, but Think of what kind of organization it is and how these organizations work. It's a nonprofit. It's a nonprofit organization. I belong to one called AAA. 
an automobile club. I get these little things in the mail asking me who I want to vote for, you know, for this and that, and I throw it in the trash. It's benign because, you know, I don't want to be a part of governorship of the AAA. I get my benefits from it. And most people who are in the NRA are in it for that. And it's only a small percentage that run the thing. And so tell anyone you know who's in the NRA or anything you can. You're in a white nationalist organization. You should get out. <laughs> get out. Get out of it. You're, you're in the Ku Klux Klan. You're the same as the Ku Klux Klan or the Nazi party. It is a white nationalist organization. And, it, you know, they talk about the good Germans. Yeah, well, the, or good us. You're, you're in an organization, you're paying the dues, you're supporting white nationalism. So I think that's the way to get rid of the main purveyor of the Second Amendment, the NRA. Because they are the church of the, NRA, of the Second Amendment. Mm. So that's a kind of defiling of the word church, but. <laughs> it's okay, there's plenty of that going on. <laughs> um, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is. Can I just say one more thing? Of course. I want Waz to come up and remind you of whose land you're on. <laughs> Please. Please. Right. If given the opportunity, I will tell you this. Um, a number of years ago, now probably uh, a decade ago, I guess, um, it was the first land recovery effort started in Minnesota in Dakota homeland. And I don't mean uh, our people, um, like our gaming communities, buying back some of our land. That's not a uh, way to appropriately address a justice issue, a long-standing justice issue. So it was um, a group of white solidarity activists in the Twin Cities metro area, predominantly uh, a group of anarchists, who uh, were talking to me about my 2008 book, What Does Justice Look Like, and, and what they can do, what they can do to help support justice for Dakota people and land return specifically. And so they said, well, have you ever thought about buying back land? I said, well, yeah. Um, in fact, our uh, reservations have done some of that, but it's always a very long and expensive, costly process. And from a justice perspective, it doesn't make sense for our people to have to buy back the land that was stolen from us in the first place. So they said, well, what if we raise money for you and turn it over so that you could buy back land? So that would work. <laughs> so um, it, we, they organized their first event, I think it was in 2009. It was an evening of reparations, a silent auction and dinner, a fundraising dinner, and they raised a couple thousand dollars that were the first uh, 
couple thousand that the or that we got for the land project. And the nonprofit I had at the time was one called Oyate Nipikte, which means the people shall live. And uh, so they donated it to the nonprofit. And since then, we've split off that land project into its separate nonprofit called Makoche Ikikchupi, which was mentioned earlier. And um, we are collecting settler donations for that project. Um, the idea is that we will use that money to buy back land uh, within uh, part of our traditional territory in Minnesota, Makoche, and our people um, who are living in exile will have a place that they can come home to and where we can establish um, communities, our own communities, based on a traditional way of life. So that's part of the experimenting and stuff that I do. Um, that's why I um, live half-time in an earth lodge right now, traditional uh, Dakota earth lodge, and um, trying to live a different, a different kind of life. So if you want more information about that, uh, we do have a website, um, which is makoche ikikchupi at, and I want to say, I don't go there very often, and I don't talk about it publicly very often. Uh, WordPress.com, I think, is where I set up the website. Um, but I will say that, um, you know, a number of years later, we have, I think, uh, the latest is about $126,000 in that land account. And so we're keeping an eye on, on parcels of land. We also ask people, if you've got family farms, if you've got private property, you don't have um, children that you're going to be willing that land to, consider a donation to the original people of this land, to Dakota people. Wopida Chichapi. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. I want to just share just a couple of closing thoughts. I'm told that uh, all of the copies of the book have been sold. Um, so if you got yours beforehand, good for you. Uh, and Waz, you're going to be, uh, oh, sorry, Roxanne, you're going to be out back uh, signing some books. So as soon as we're done, we'll let you get out there. The other thing to say is we are collecting donations gratefully tonight for two organizations. One is the Bedote Learning Center. Uh, it's a K-7 charter school in South Minneapolis that uh, teaches Dakota and Ojibwe language by immersion. And the other is a project of this congregation uh, for the Dakota 38 plus 2 ride uh, that culminates in Mankato, Minnesota on December 26th each year. This congregation provides the meal to those riders and runners. And so your donations uh, will be split between the two organizations and there's a basket in the, in the lobby if you would like that. Thank you so much for coming this evening. Go in peace.